podcast. Time to get up and get going, South Coast. It's time for the Tim Weisberg Show on WBSM. Also streaming live on WBSM.com and on the WBSM app. Talk to Tim now at 508-996-0500 or send him a message or a voicemail through the WBSM app. And now, ready to start your day off with a bang. It's Tim Weisberg. Welcome back in hour number three of the program here on Wednesday. And uh, it is October. I might have said November in the last last hour there, but it is October. And October is a very important month. Uh, it is a month in which we shine a light on the issue of domestic violence. And joining us, we have the executive director of the Women's Center. We have Kristen Bastone with us. Good morning, Kristen. How are you? Good morning, Tim. Thank you. And we also have Hassan Sudo. Uh, who is the community services director for the Good Women's morning. Center. So thank you for having us. Thank you both for coming in and, and joining us to talk about this. And first of all, Kristen, tell us a little bit about the Women's Center and the work that is done there. Yes, thank you, Tim. So we've been in the community of the greater South Coast for 50 years. So we're building on the foundation of what our foremothers have created. We serve women, men, and children from 13 towns and communities in the South Coast. And we focus on survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault. And our programs aim to bring safety, hope, and empowerment to uh, all survivors who are in need of that. And I, I think people have a tendency when they hear about domestic violence to think about women that are in that su- uh, situation. But as Kristen said, Hassan, there are men who are involved in these situations as well. Yeah, there are men. About one in seven men will be exposed to some type of physical violence in their life. Um, there's just a little bit more of a stigma for men to talk about it. So it's not something that people feel very comfortable doing. So at the Women's Center, in addition to having male staff, we have a, a men's healthy relationship group. And we do a lot of outreach aimed at identifying survivors regardless of gender. So it is the the focus, Kristen, of the Women's Center, as you said, it's, it's to help with the people who are the victims of this. But does it also kind of help to get to the root of some of the issues of why people have these problems? Because a lot of times, at least from my understanding, it's not that people go into these relationships with the intention of, of abusing someone else. It's just that sometimes, you know, they're, they've been victims themselves of it and they don't know any other way. Yes, and that's exactly what a major program that Hassan focuses on tries to get at is prevention and education. So we spend a lot of time and resources in the community because the research shows that education reduces perpetration and victimization. And so with that program, I mean, you're dealing with, because, you know, it kind of become, I hate to use the term cliche when talking about this, but it's kind of become that cliche. If you say to someone who is the victim of abuse, why do you stay with that person if that's the way they treat you? And they say, well, because I love them in all other aspects. It's just this one. And people look at that and saying, well, they look at the victim and say, well, what's wrong with you that you can't walk away with that? When really the question is, well, what's wrong with the abuser that they have to have that one aspect of their life? That's a really great way of putting it, Tim. When, When one has, I don't know, you know, a heart issue, you don't say like, you don't blame, you know, their heart, you blame the medical issues that they have. But when it comes to domestic violence, it, they do get a lot of victim blaming. So at the Women's Center, we try to do our, do our best to dismantle rape culture and also to educate people on exactly what you said, you know, is getting to the root cause of why is this person an abuser and most likely they themselves were abused. 
But the important thing is, you know, that that's going to take work, Kristen, to be able to, to peel back those layers and get to those causes. And people need to be in a safe situation. They can't wait for that safety to come around. You've got to get them into a situation right away where they're not going to be victims of abuse any further. Exactly, Tim. And just to clarify, our work doesn't focus on the perpetrator so much. Right. Our work focuses on the survivors. So, yes, we have emergency shelter that's available. We have one of the, oh, actually the only domestic violence and substance misuse shelter in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. So for people who are struggling with substance misuse and fleeing domestic violence, we have a program that's tailored specifically there. So yes, um, responding to emergency needs in multiple areas. So we meet people at the hospital. We have a strong medical advocacy program and we work with the hospitals and the sexual assault nurse examiner program to uh, meet, meet any time of the day, 24 seven, meet survivors at the hospital and yes, uh, provide those initial, um, that initial access to safety to, to just begin right there. And, and I'm sure on a case by case basis, it's, it's, it's going to differ. But generally, what is kind of the approach when you have somebody who is you, you've you've talked with somebody who is a victim? This is your first encounter with them, your first discussions with them. How do you get them started on the path to being safer and to feeling like, you know, they're they, they've got to remove themselves from the situation? Well, the first thing to do is to to not blame, because if you think about it, this person may have been subjected to that in law enforcement, in their own family. So the first thing is to believe them regardless of their story and to sort of normalize it for them, because a lot of victims of domestic violence and sexual assault, Tim, they have an inherent sense of blame. So let them know that they're not alone. This is something that a lot of people go through and that there are free resources available for them. Somebody might be in a place where they're not really ready to do a group, but they might be ready to do counseling or they might want to weigh out their core options. And I'm happy to say at the Women's Center, we have all the comprehensive services for victims of domestic violence and sexual assault. And you're, you're not the courts, you're not the police. Correct. So you're not having anything to do with, you know, blaming anybody for this or, yep. or putting, putting the onus on anybody for this. You're just trying to help in the situation. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that, I, I would guess that that has to kind of be the start and then if there's other things that have to come about of that, if they may, might need to press charges, if they may need to have somebody arrested, but they have to get kind of that clear mind of getting out of that situation. And anybody that's ever been in any kind of situation where you have to look at it from a 30,000 foot view, you realize how hard it is to get that perspective. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of help with that. Yeah. Yeah. And we know that it takes someone seven to nine times to leave an abusive situation for wow. good. Yep. And so we're there for each of those attempts and it gets back to the non-judgment position Hassan mentioned that we don't judge someone who may return because of children or finances mm. or lifelong relationship mm. and but we're there for every attempt and and every um, move forward so seven to nine seems like a lot for someone to endure mm. to realize that this is a, a situation but the I'm sure not every case starts off with something that's very blatant and obvious where they say, yep. wow, I'm in an abusive relationship. I think it's probably something that they kind of normalize over time because they say, well, that that's just how they are. And you need things like Domestic Violence Awareness Month to make people aware of the fact that some of these things are red flags that you should be paying attention to. Right. Yes. And another sort of misunderstanding about domestic violence is that it's only physical. 
So, but what we see all the time is that domestic violence can take the shape of financial abuse, where the purse strings of the finances are held tightly uh, by one partner, distributed in small amounts, lack of access to bank accounts. Um, we see a lot of emotional abuse as well. And the after effects of emotional abuse on a person can be even longer lasting than the physical form. Um, we see spiritual abuse where people prevent their partner from um, attending worship services or uh, believing what they want to believe. Um, so domestic violence, you know, we want, we want to move away from the notion that it's strictly physical. There's abuse that happens at all different levels, and we're there for survivors of all different kinds of domestic abuse. Wow. So, I mean, I'm hearing some of that, and I'm thinking to myself that I wouldn't have even considered that really to be a form of abuse. I'd say, you know, obviously they're not on the same page. There's something going on here. Um, it's not healthy, the, the what you're going through, but I wouldn't have realized that it actually reaches to the point of being characterized as abuse. When it gets into the areas of control and power, then you have an abusive situation. Mm -hmm. So, right, disagreeing on how to spend money and where the, you know, the, you always have a saver or a spender, right, in, in any kind of relationship. But, um, right, when it moves into power and control and one person is using resources to control another yep. or to have power over another, then then we, then then that's what what we see as abuse. And Hassan, when you're trying to, when you're taking somebody who has been a victim of this, you're, you're basically trying to, um, as you said, you know, let them know it's, it's not their fault. And you're trying to rebuild their self-esteem and right. kind of rebuild them as a, as a person to be able to live outside of the situation. What are some of the methods that you utilize to help people kind of overcome some of this, this trauma? So we have a, a few tools. So I just piggyback on something Kristen mentioned. It's coercive control. That's such an, an important point because when people think of intimate partner violence and domestic violence, they do think of physical, but 80% of those cases are emotional abuse. So the biggest thing that seems to be worked based on evidence is giving people support groups and trainings on learning healthy relationships, boundaries, healthy relationship one-on-one, -on -one because let's say you're a child and you grow up in a home where there's domestic violence and you know you have an, somebody who's passive and somebody who's aggressive per se. You don't realize that you know there, there are other modalities of handling disagreements. That's what you learned from your parents. So how do you unlearn that? It takes a little bit of time to learn that there's a whole array of options at your disposal to resolve an argument and to express yourself. And I think for a lot of people, they... As you said, you know, they look at the way that they grew up and they think that that's normal. Mm. They think, and, and sometimes, though, it just takes seeing one example yeah. of the other way of doing it where you realize, hey, wait a minute, it doesn't have to that's be that true. way. Yeah. And so I'm, you know, I'm assuming that you hear a lot of folks who come at you and say, well, this is all that I've ever known. Yeah. And all you have to do is kind of show them that other path. Mm -hmm. And it, it's like turning on a light for them. It's helpful. Yeah. Yep. And it's about choice at that moment, Tim. And so we focus a lot, especially in um, living, the communal living in our shelters on when someone has had their choices stripped from them and the, their power to make a choice taken from them, then sometimes those very small choices in the beginning can begin to turn that light bulb on and, and you begin to see that, oh, this is what it feels like to have a choice. And so simple choices um, in everyday living make a big difference in our 
housing, emergency housing environments and in our counseling relationships as well. So we're talking about folks who are realizing that they're in this situation or coming to that realization and then trying to help them. But is there a way that people who might have a loved one that they're seeing this happen to or someone that they know, a friend or a neighbor, is there something that they can do to help with the people that are in that type of relationship? Because I think a lot of people kind of look at it as, ah, I know that this isn't healthy, but it's also kind of not my business. Yeah. So one thing I'm really proud about the Women's Center is that we have funding to help secondary survivors, Tim, so that somebody who has a loved one who's exposed to domestic violence, they can contact the Women's Center, they can do a group, they can speak to a counselor and get some of the guidance that they need to help their loved one um, because you really don't know where to start. You know, maybe you feel like you want to, you know, um, blame the abuser because they hurt the person you love. And then you learn that that might not be helpful because now you might isolate that victim and that survivor from having somebody to go to. So we're happy to give tools to people who are trying to navigate helping somebody that they love. Uh, yeah, I think it's kind of a fine line in a lot of families and, and yeah. dynamics for, you know, you think you're trying to help and they kind of come back and say, well, why are you judging me? Right. And so it's it's something that you have to walk a, a delicate balance mm -hmm. of. Do you find that when, as you said, you know, it takes seven to nine times for people to, to go through this and realize it, but do you find that when people do come out on the other side of it, they want to kind of give back and help others who have gone through the same thing and, and kind of help others that might have gone through it so that they don't have to go through it seven to nine times themselves? Absolutely. And we have, you know, we're in a recruiting phase now, so as we're growing, and we have had a number of folks who are former clients apply for opening, you know, open positions that we have because they want to give back. Or we have someone that wants to hold a group and volunteer to lead a group conversation because they were helped by the Women's Center. They've been through something that they, and so they, they can relate to our survivors. And with the kids, you know, there's a, we have a, a wonderful story of one of the children who was part of our child and adolescent trauma therapy program who went on to attend UMass Dartmouth and um, go into the medical field and really thrive. And so she's giving back to, as a nurse, as a, um, as a participant in the medical community to, um, to help others in, in that way too. So we see that all the time. Yes. Can, are there people who do come to you too and say, hey, listen, I'm in this relationship and after hearing you on the radio or reading up about this, I think that just the way that I might be treating my partner may be abusive. Do you have people that are kind of owning that and, and coming to that realization on their own? Because we're, it seems like we're characterizing people as, you know, having intention behind this. And I don't know that every case is an, is an intentional thing. Mm -hmm. So do you have people that come to you to say, hey, I need help to not be this way anymore? Yeah, we do. And um, there are programs out there for people who um, are at a phase in life where they feel like they're questioning if they're being abusive, if they've maybe learned a pattern that's not healthy. There are resources for them. Like Kristen said, our focus is mainly on survivors and secondary survivors, but we can make a referral to a host of agencies to help people out. So how can people reach out to you if they do want some help, if they feel like they need... I mean, you said, obviously, you're meeting people in a lot of, in a lot of points where you know, it's come to the point where you have to come and, and, and see them and find them. But how can they reach out to you if they're thinking that they need to do something about what's going on in their life? Well, we actually just moved into a new location this week. For, this is our first week in a new location. And we were stewards of a beautiful historic property in New Bedford. And 
in order to meet the community needs, we had to move so that we have room to expand our programs. So for instance, we have three child and adolescent trauma therapists. In our new space, we have room for six. Um, and then each department has room for growth there. So we'd love for people to come visit us at 174 Union Street in New Bedford. And we also have a 24-7 hotline that's available, and we meet people at the hospital. And then, of course, just calling our main number at... 508-996-3343. All right. Well, I want to thank you both for letting us know. Before I let you go, is there anything else that you just want to make people aware of here in Domestic Violence Awareness Month? I think, you know, we, we can't do this work without our community partners. So our donors, our funders, our philanthropic partners... Our other human service agencies, um, we're looking forward in the next 50 years, or the beginning of the next 50 years, to reestablish and build those strong community partnerships so we can continue this work. We're all in it together. Mm-hmm. Hassan, any final thoughts? Just if you remember to wear purple, and if you have a platform, Facebook or social media, just um, share a post for Domestic Violence Awareness Month. All right, and well, thank you both for coming in and for keeping us up to date. And don't wait for October to share with us more information about the work that you're doing over there. We have an open door. You're welcome anytime. Thank, thank you, you so much, Tim. All right, we got to take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. So very important information there as we were learning about the Women's Center in New Bedford. And, uh, and of course, we won't just wait for Domestic Violence Awareness Month to talk more about that. It is something that we will uh, keep discussing throughout the course of the year. Uh, but again... If you need help, you can reach out to them. You can stop by and see them on Union Street at their new facility, uh, or you can also reach out to them. It's If you go to the Women's Center, the Women's Center is, uh, I'm looking here at the website. Let me just make sure I get it here correctly. Uh, if you go to the womenscentersc.com, you can get all of the information that you need there. So uh, that way there, you can, you know, take a look at it. Go through it yourself and then determine if you want to reach out and get some assistance. Coming up after the news, we're going to be talking with Yaniv Diner. He is the uh, conductor of the New Bedford Symphony Orchestra. Their season begins on Saturday. We're going to talk with him about what you can expect from the NBSO season. Also in a new location uh, with the Zaitarian work being done. So we'll find out more about that as well. But right now, let's find out about all the headlines of the day with Ariel Dorsey and the WBSM Newsroom. U.S. officials are investigating whether some of the Hamas militants who carried out the shocking attack on Israel got advanced training from Iran. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said on Tuesday that Iran was complicit in the attack that was far more sophisticated than past Hamas operations. House Republicans are scheduled to vote on a new speaker today. The vote will come after Majority Leader Steve Scalise of Louisiana and Judiciary Committee Jim Jordan of Ohio made their pitches to GOP House members and took questions during a closed-door forum on Tuesday. Pope Francis is calling on Hamas to release all of the hostages taken by the militant group since it launched an attack on Israel over the weekend. Hamas is believed to be holding around 150 hostages. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky made a surprise visit to NATO headquarters today. Zelensky has been appealing to Western allies to continue providing Ukraine with aid and weapons since Hamas attacked Israel early Saturday. He's compared the attacks by Hamas to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. 
And NASA is about to launch a spacecraft on a nearly six-year mission to an asteroid that seems to be largely made of metal. Most of asteroids are made of rock or ice or gas. The principal investigator for the mission says the asteroid named Psyche is about the size of Massachusetts. Researchers believe around 30 to 60 percent of it is metal. The spacecraft that will launch Thursday morning from Florida's Kennedy Space Center should start sending back images in August of 2029. And with no winners Monday night, the next Powerball drawing is for the second largest lottery jackpot in U.S. history. Trey Thomas has more. This is Powerball. Good evening, America. I'm Sam Arlen. Tonight we have a... Winning numbers this Wednesday would bring in a prize of $1.73 billion or a lump cash payment of $756 million. The last jackpot, just over a billion dollars, was won back on July 19th. I'm Trey Thomas. In sports, the Patriots are hoping to get some much-needed help for the receiving core. Wide receiver Tyquan Thornton returned to the practice field on Tuesday, and Thornton suffered an undisclosed shoulder injury during joint practices with the Green Bay Packers. The Pats now have up to three weeks to add him to the active roster, and New England is last in the AFC East at 1-4 and four and will visit the Las Vegas Raiders this weekend. And the puck has officially dropped on the NHL regular season. The Bruins begin their season tonight when they play host to the Chicago Blackhawks. Hawks at TD Garden. The Bruins are hoping to recover from a disappointing end to last year. After setting the NHL's single season point and win record, Boston was eliminated in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs by the Florida Panthers. And general managers across the NBA have given their predictions on which team will win the title this season. The defending champion Denver Nuggets and the Boston Celtics were selected as co-favorites to hoist the Larry O'Brien trophy with 33% of the vote. The Celtics continue their exhibition schedule when they visit the Philadelphia 76ers tonight at Wells Fargo Center. Now let's take a look at your local forecast with ABC6. To be with you, everybody, on this Wednesday morning, uh, disturbance aloft will be bringing a few showers this morning with cool temperatures. Otherwise, mainly dry mix of sun and clouds this afternoon with temperatures in the upper 60s. Dry and cool overnight tonight as we head into Thursday, Friday. Cooler temperatures with more sun than clouds. Be sure to watch ABC6 for my full seven-day forecast. From the ABC6 Weather Center, I'm meteorologist Sassi del Carmen on New Bedford's News Talk Station, 1420 WBSM. I'm Ariel Dorsey for WBSM News. Stay up to date with New Bedford's News Talk Station, WBSM, and get breaking news alerts with the WBSM app. Get breaking news alerts, stream audio, send us text messages, and get live traffic and weather updates all on the WBSM app. Download it now from your app store or at WBSM.com. And welcome back in. This Saturday is the beginning of the season for the New Bedford Symphony Orchestra. They're going to be at a new location, and we're going to talk about that and so much more with our guest, the conductor of the NBSO. Yaniv Diner joins us on the line now. Good morning, Yaniv. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for... Uh, joining us after my technical snafu yesterday. <laughs> oh, uh, it's a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you for having me. So we are going to be talking about what people can expect from the upcoming season of the NBSO. And as I mentioned earlier, it's going to be in a new location with the work that's being done to the Zyterian uh, over the next couple of years. The NBSO has been able to relocate to the uh, Bronspiegel Auditorium at New Bedford High School. And it it's a challenge to be able to move into a new place when I'm sure the musicians have become so accustomed to the Zyterian over the years. 
Uh, yes, uh, playing in a new location always presents uh, some challenges. Uh, of course, uh, acoustically, you know, if, if it's a dry place, um, it affects the playing. You have to play a little bit uh, faster and longer, longer notes to make, uh, to kind of create um, an artificial um, sort of echo. If you will, uh, or if it's a very um, boomy place like a church, for example, sometimes we do concerts at churches. Uh, then you have to adjust and play play slightly slower because if you play fast, everything will get lost in the in the echo. So, um, uh, but this is something that uh, we're. Um, this is part of the profession, you know, uh, and um, it's interesting because we still haven't played there yet. We're only going to find out uh, tomorrow in the first rehearsal how everything sounds. And um, we'll make sure that uh, we will sound uh, as great as always. And and you've said that the people being there can have an effect and the way that the people are seated can have an effect on, on the acoustics and the way that it sounds. Um, and I find that to be very interesting that, you know, you, you could have a different type of crowd each night and that crowd will actually dictate in some ways how the musicians perform the piece. That's right. Um, because because the, the human body absorbs sound, uh, so that affects, um, affects everything too, and it's something that we we take into consideration. And we might uh, have to adjust on the spot. Uh, I I remember one time that uh, I did a concert in uh, in Mexico with an orchestra uh, in Mexico City, and then uh, we we drove to do a, a run out in in a church, and we didn't rehearse in in that church. We 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 just played the concert without any any rehearsal and um uh, i uh i felt immediately that we need to slow down the tempo on the spot so so we adjusted uh while playing that's uh, also part of of being a musician i can't imagine that's the preferred way of having to do it though uh yeah of course it's always preferable to to check the the place before and and rehearse and uh and see what you can do, but but sometimes uh, um, you know in reality these things happen, and uh, you have to deal with it too. So the performance that this season is kicking off with this Saturday at seven thirty uh, at the high school auditorium is called Three Worlds. Can you kind of explain to us what that's all about? The idea of three worlds and and what their show encompasses. Yes, uh, this this um, opening night of our season uh, will feature three pieces that were written in the 20th century. Um, and uh, although uh, two of them, uh, the Elgar Cello Concerto and Sibelius' Seventh Symphony, they were written about in about the same, the same time, the same years, in the beginning of the 20th century, they're completely different, a completely different uh, musical language uh, the Elgar Cello Concerto uh, actually looks back to the 19th century. It's very romantic. Uh, it's uh, written in four movements. Uh, it's kind of uh, tragic and very virtuosic and um, very moving 
we have a wonderful cellist, um, up-and-coming cellist, Sydney Lee, that I actually discovered uh, online in Instagram. I saw a video of her uh, just browsing, you know, around Instagram, and, uh, and I was blown away, and I thought, oh, she would be perfect for the Elder Concert. So uh, I'm excited to work with her. And, uh, the, and on the other hand, the Sibelius Seventh Symphony is the last symphony that he wrote, and this was a time in his life that he kind of uh, uh, secluded himself from society. He was a national hero. Uh, everybody, everybody in, in Finland knows who Sibelius was because he was such a, an important part of, of, um, of the country getting independence uh, because it was under uh, Russia's rule at the time. Uh, so at the time he 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 was kind of lonely and he lived in the woods in a in a cabin, and he wrote this uh, the symphony. He worked about he worked on it for about ten years, and uh, it's very concise, very short, only twenty minutes, and it's written in one movement, and it it uh, begins uh, kind of in a in a very simple scale that reaches a conflict. And uh, throughout the symphony, the, the musical material kind of uh, uh, is going through metamorphosis uh, very organically. And uh, it's a very, very unique piece, uh, very beautiful, also romantic, but with some um, more modern elements. And we're going to open the concert uh, with the piece by a living composer, American composer, James Lee III, uh, and it's called Sukkot through Orion's Nebula. Sukkot is the uh, is a Jewish holiday that um, uh, was actually celebrated only last week. Uh, it's the holiday where uh, the Jewish people around the world uh, they build hats and then they they sit in the hats and they eat and they celebrate. The harvest, uh, but uh, it's interesting because I didn't find any Jewish element in this in this piece. It's very American. It's very much in- influenced by uh, movie American movie music, um, kind of like John Williams, you know, Star Wars. It reminds me of. Uh, so it's a very varied program, um, and and uh, I can't wait to to perform it for our audience. And, uh, you know, this is something that we discussed, you know, yesterday, you and I, but the idea that you're performing this piece, the, the orchestra is performing this piece, you're conducting this piece at a time when I'm sure your mind isn't straying far from your native Israel and what's going on over there. So what has this week been like for you in, in preparation for this? And, and how do you think that things will go on Saturday? Yes, what uh, we're seeing uh, from from Israel uh, is, is just devastating, and uh, of course, I'm in touch with with my family there, and uh, uh, it's been hard to uh, to just you know continue your daily life as it is, your routine. It's it's impossible, and uh, it's really it's a difficult time, and and. Um, uh, I think it's uh, it, it's great for me personally that 
that I'm I'm coming to New Bedford and I'm going to see the symphony soon because uh, I need it. I need them. I need the musicians. I need I need their artistry like like uh, like air, um, like food for my soul. Uh, and I think it will be um, it will be good for me personally. Uh, they, you see, they don't they don't only need me as a conductor. I also need them. So uh, to make music is is always uh, a good a good therapy. Uh, always a, uh, a cure. And I, I think that, you know, a lot of people turn to music and, and, and listening to music as a way to kind of help take them out of the situation that they might be in and to give them something, you know, uplifting to focus on. And it sounds like conducting music can, can do the exact same thing. Yes, uh, of course. And, uh, you know, as the conductor, uh, I, I have the best seat in the house uh, because I, uh, I'm in the center uh, in front of the orchestra, and I'm kind of surrounded by the music. Uh, of course, it's a it's a wonderful thing. Uh, it's a wonderful feeling, and to make music together with the um, musicians of the New Bedford Symphony that I haven't seen uh, for a couple of months um, is, is is really is, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, one thing I will say, but if you go to the uh, website for the New Bedford Symphony Orchestra and you go to buy tickets for the show, you can see a photo of the view of the Bronze Spiegel Auditorium from the stage. And I know you said, Yaniv, that you have the best seat in the house, but there is no bad seat in the house. Every seat is great, and it looks like it's going to be one heck of a place to be able to hear such fantastic music. Yes, uh, I think, um, uh, of course, it will be different this year. Uh, but uh, we we made sure that um, everything will be uh, as as best as, as and as close as possible to the experience uh, that our audience is used to. And uh, of course, we are the same. The orchestra is the same, and uh, uh, our music making and our commitment to to music and to our audience and to um, get, getting everyone uh, through an, an experience that w- uh, will change them, hopefully, for the better, um, is something that, that we're, we always do and we always strive for. Um, so um, um, what can I say? I'm excited. And the show is this coming Saturday, October 14th at the Bronze Spiegel Auditorium at New Bedford High. Free open rehearsal, as has become the custom, on Friday, October 13th at 4 p.m. If people want to go in and check it out and be able to see that behind-the-scenes look at it. And also on Saturday, you're going to be giving a a pre-concert talk as well. Yes. uh, So the open rehearsal uh, is something that we started uh, doing, uh, and uh, people love it because they, they love to come and watch how actually you put a concert together um, what do you work on what uh, what does a rehearsal look like because uh, it's not like in the concert that you get to see the the finished product we stop we work we we go back we play again um, it's a it's a very dynamic process and uh, very unexpected because you don't know what's going to happen uh so uh, the the audience love it and we also love it we also uh appreciate that we have an audience even for the rehearsals uh it affects us it uh it makes us play better 
because uh, we know that somebody is there listening. And we love playing for people. That's the whole point. And uh, the, the pre-concert talk, um, one hour before the, the concert, is always fun. Um, I uh, usually have a talk, a very casual uh, talk with the soloist about the piece but that they're playing, but also about them as, as a person, uh, about their life, what they like to do besides music. Uh, the audience gets to know them better uh, before they play. And um, it's a lot of fun. Well, it sounds like it's going to be a, a fantastic night and a fantastic performance. You can get tickets by going to nbsymphony.org, NB for New Bedford, nbsymphony.org. Yaniv, thank you for joining us, and please keep us up to date with everything throughout the course of the season. Thank you so much. All right, and uh, we will we will see you on Saturday. Thank you, Tim. That is Yaniv Diner. He is the conductor and the musical director of the New Bedford Symphony Orchestra. We've got to take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Request. Um. All right, well, we are going to be running out of here, giving way to Chris McCarthy with South Coast Now coming up, so stay tuned for that. Uh, if you want to come out and see me tonight, I will be at the New Bedford Public Library at 7 o'clock talking about ghosts, paranormal